This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair, number 36, January 18, 1983. Today we have with us one of our Calcedon men, Otto J. Scott. I think all of you are familiar with him because of his writings in the Calcedon Report, his books such as The Professional, James I, Robespierre, and also The Secret Six. Incidentally, I keep getting questions from a number of you about the availability of James I. Everybody is trying to track down a copy across country and has not yet succeeded. We do hope in a year or two it will be reprinted. Otto's background has been quite a varied one. He comes from an old Scottish family with deep roots in the Americas, in the Caribbean, and in Venezuela. Otto has himself a varied background in uh, the media, newspaper work as a foreign correspondent and editor, as an oil executive, and now as a Calcedon staff member. During 1983, Otto spent a great deal of time in South Africa. He is working on a book on South Africa, as well as one on Woodrow Wilson and another on industrial research and development. What you're going to hear today is about South Africa, a preview of a few aspects of the book that he will do on the subject. How long were you in South Africa, Otto? All told, Rush, about three months uh, during 1982. Whom did you see while you were there? Well, I interviewed a number of individuals, most uh, ranging from government officials to private individuals. Uh, early on in the second trip, I talked to an, uh, an official in the South Africa Foundation in Johannesburg, who happened to be of English descent. Very interesting young man named Curtis. Mr. Curtis said, uh, most of the journalists and writers who come to South Africa are introduced by the Department of Information to our liberals. He said they're invited to embassy parties and they meet a sprinkling of black people and colored people and they hear things that uh, our embassy officials believe they want to hear. But he said what you really should do if you want to understand this country is to talk to the Afrikaans. The Afrikaners are the ones who are running the country. And of all the Afrikaners, the members of the Broderbund are the most important. Therefore, I would suggest to you that you try to get hold of the head of the Broderbund and talk to him. Mm -hmm. I said, well, what's his name? He said, his name is Dr. Karl Boschoff. He's a professor of theology at the Pretoria University. So when I went to Pretoria, I looked Dr. Boschoff up, and I did interview him, and it was fascinating. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Broderbund, or Brotherhood. I think we hear some strange tales here in this country, and uh, I'd be interested in your perspective. Well, it is a semi-secret organization, from what I can understand, in the sense that it is not public. One cannot apply for membership. Membership is on the same level as, for instance, the Masonic orders. Uh, it's by invitation only, and after a certain amount of, I suppose, assessment of the individuals. It seems to be pretty well uh, restricted to Afrikaans individuals, although I'm not positive about that. Uh, the general description of the Broderbund by the American and English journalists, at least, is that they're sort of a fascist organization. Mm -hmm. So therefore, when I went to see Dr. Boshoff, I was prepared. 
for uh, extreme rigid attitudes and a somewhat narrow viewpoint and so on. When I arrived at his estate, and it was an estate, with horses and a great deal of grounds, landscaped and so forth, he turned out to be a professor of theology, an ordained minister. When I brought up uh, the uh, black community on the edge of Johannesburg called Soweto, he said, well, what do you want to know about it? I was a missionary there for eight years, and I wasn't prepared for a missionary. And uh, I asked him what his long-range goal was and the goal of his group regarding the black people of South Africa. He said, we want to see them to be independent. We want them to be free. He said, we want them to have their own culture and their own land and be in charge of their own destiny. We don't want to be in charge of their destiny. He said, we look forward to the creation of a commonwealth of South Africa. Well, I said, a commonwealth is an English idea. And the English tried it and it didn't work. Why should it work for you? He said, well, the English made a mistake. They tried to run all the areas, all the elements of the commonwealth. But he said, we don't intend to do that. We intend to run our own area, but we want the blacks to run theirs. And then he said, if we meet on the basis of equality, we think we can create a new kind of society. He did use the word equality. Yes. That would uh, seem incredible to a great many Americans, given the kind of talk they hear about the Rotterbond and the Afrikaners. Definitely. What do you see being done in that direction I think the, the change that was underway when I was there, which has now been announced, of setting up a new government, a new constitution, a new system of voting, in which the presidency is made stronger, but the president is advised by a presidential council. The council will have, uh, will consist of three chambers. There will be one for the whites, one for the black, uh, one for the coloreds, and one for the Indians. The blacks so far are not involved. There's a step in that direction. As far as the blacks are concerned, the steps that have been taken have been in the area of the homelands, in which the territory has been put aside for the blacks, within which they are independent. Uh, the critics of South Africa say that this is a farce, that they're not actually independent. But Anne and I crossed the border and went into the black homeland of the Transkei. And there was no mistaking the fact that the black official on the other side was in charge. We had to have papers. We had to tell them who we were. They had to look at our papers and they had to let us through. And they had to let us out. And within that transkai, they are sovereign. We hear also from the journalists that these uh, native uh, areas within the Commonwealth are the poorest territories. What was your in impression of the transkai, for example? Transkai is not a poor area. On the other hand, my impression was that the people who occupy the transkai, the uh, black people there are not farmers. They're husbandmen. They were animal people and not land people. Uh, we wouldn't really expect people who believe in herds of cows and goats and so forth to expect uh, good agricultural land because they wouldn't want it. Mm -hmm. What seems to be overlooked is that most of the land in South Africa is not agricultural land so that the amount of land that was given to the blacks out of the arable land is much larger than the amount of land overall. Therefore, there's been a very special way of presenting this on the part of the critics, which misleads. They have really received very good territory, and lots of it, 
many many areas of which the whites have been forced off in order for the blacks to have a place. They've actually moved out white. Oh, yes. They've moved out whites. One of the things that uh, I think is particularly interesting is that South Africa appears to be, even in peacetime, a nation under siege. I'd like to read something from the Phoenix Letter, edited by Antony Sutton, the January 1983 issue, describing the intentions of the Soviet regime during the next decade. He lists as one of the key ones, toward the end of the decade, move for an all-out turmoil in South Africa, preparatory to a Soviet takeover. This will place most of the world's gold and diamonds in Soviet hands. Would you like to comment on that and how South Africa uh, views that possibility? Well, they regard this effort as, I wouldn't say inevitable, but very likely. They've stockpiled three years' supply of crude oil. They've stockpiled three years' supply of food. It's the only country, it's the only country in the world, so far as I know, that has such a reserve in place. We don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe has about, uh, I think, six weeks we have about six weeks of crude oil. Russia certainly doesn't have three years' supply of food. So the South Africans are preparing for a siege, and they expect a military effort to come from uh, Zimbabwe on one side and Mozambique on the other, so that you might say the right shoulder and the left shoulder of South Africa will be invaded from the north. They think they can hold out. They hope the West will come to their assistance. Are they counting on the West? Well, I would say they are. I'd say that, although they're very careful not to say so, my feeling is that they expect the United States to come to their aid. I'm not sure that's a very uh, practical expectation. Mm -hmm. How do they feel the black population will react to such an invasion? Well, I think I'm not positive as to all their official attitude in that respect, but my own opinion is that the black man has never thrown the white man out of any area. The white man has withdrawn from various areas. And on occasion, white people have had wars over the proper treatment of black people. But in no area has the black overcome the white. I don't expect the black people of South Africa to rise in rebellion against the Afrikaans. Uh, For one thing, they're literate, they read newspapers, and the English-language newspapers in South Africa are oriented toward a black audience. I talked to the uh, a former labor editor of the Johannesburg Daily Mail and asked him why the newspaper carried in every edition items of exacerbation, exacerbated relations between the races, ranging from the very minor to major problems. And his answer was, well, after all, most of our readers are black. And I thought later, in what way did that help then? Mm-hmm. But in any event, the black people of South Africa read the newspapers and the magazines. They have access to television and radio. They understand the English language, as they mostly understand Afrikaans, too. They know what's happening in the rest of black Africa. They have no desire to go through the equivalent of an idiomen. One of the things that comes through the press is that these blacks of South Africa are living in incredible poverty, 
in areas where they live in shacks with tin roofs, with no water, and they must go some distance to haul water, and that life there in these settlements is incredibly primitive and bad. Have you seen anything like that? And what was the life of the black community like? Well, Soweto is being electrified at governmental expense. It uh, did not have galvanized huts. It had houses made of brick, ranging from very small and modest to quite elaborate installations that would be worth about a quarter of a million dollars. These were black homes. Black homes uh, on 99-year leases. Mm -hmm. The majority of the homes in Soweto seem to be rented at something equivalent to about $15 or $20 a month. Uh, The minority of the homes are uh, occupied outright on a 99-year lease and they're owned. The question that I put to Boshoff regarding Soweto, I said, what do you... uh, what solution would you have for something like Soweto? Because Soweto has at least 100 or 200,000 more people than its official census indicates. <laughs> Black people keep coming in across the border into South Africa in order to have better livelihood and so on. And it's impossible for them to close their borders entirely, just as it's impossible for us to keep our southern border totally sealed against Mexican immigrants. And he said, well, I think it might be better if we had a half a dozen or a dozen Soweto's rather than simply one. Mm -hmm. If we had the equivalent of a black city next to all our white cities, it would diffuse the problem and disperse the problem to a considerable extent. The inhabitants of Soweto work in Johannesburg. They go in in buses, and they come back in buses at night. They have, Of course, they have cars, they have theaters, they have their own schools, private schools, public schools, and so forth. It was not at all uh, in keeping with the legend that you've described, although I do think that legend was probably true a generation ago. What is hard to keep in mind, not only regarding South Africa, but regarding other parts of the world, is the passage of time and the great changes that have taken place on a worldwide level in the last 30 years or so. I recall that when I was a boy and we visited South America, in Brazil, for instance, in Rio. Rio was a great big city in the early 1930s. But the majority of people didn't have shoes. They wore sandals. If you saw people with shoes on, you knew they were a doctor. They were a member of the upper class. Well, now, of course, people in South America wear shoes. They have skyscrapers. They have glass-hung monstrosities the same way we do. And uh, the same is true of people in South Africa. Uh, It's very hard to keep current on the living standards of the world and to realize the fact that in 19, the 1980s the whole world is on a standard that our fathers would have considered incredible. Black, white, or whatever. In other words, just as America draws the Mexican illegal aliens and we have an illegal alien problem, according to some, They come here because this is where the money is. So the illegal blacks are crossing constantly into South Africa because that's the rich part and where the jobs are. No question. The miners, for instance, are recruited from the black countries uh, around South Africa. They, most of the money that the miners make in the South African mines are taken by their government as a sort of a withholding, so that the miners only receive a portion of what they earn. Their governments ship them in to South Africa to work, 
and their earnings constitute a considerable part of the earnings of their parent countries. The miner himself, of course, saves some money via the company, and at the end of his contract, he can go back to his native village. The company, in the meantime, has given his family in his native village a certain percentage of his salary. Every week, their paymasters travel through those villages and give them the, the allotment. And at the end of the period of time, the miner has a certain amount accumulated, which the company gives him and which he carries with him when he goes home, with which he can then buy a bride or another wife. Since in many of these areas, the man can have as many wives as he can afford. And the more wives, the better, because they can help him work his farm or his holdings or whatever. He is, in effect, put into business. How do the surrounding nations view their uh, own people who cross the border illegally? Do they try to keep them in? Is it a problem? Well, here we're confronting a... You're bringing up a problem of... I guess the easiest thing to say would be the modern hypocrisy. All the governments of those countries engage in diatribes and indignant lectures about the racist government of South Africa. And every one of them are dependent upon South Africa for food, for machinery, for commerce, as a safety valve for the starving of their own people, and so on. Uh, What can we say about this? They all trade with South Africa. They all have secret commerce with South Africa. And diplomatically, they deny that this exists. Diplomatically, they won't allow the South African airways to land their planes on their territory. The only place that the South African airlines can refuel going in and out of South Africa uh, to New York or to Europe is in the Seychelles Islands, which are uh, actually a, a, a part of the old Portuguese empire, which is operated by a communist regime. Yes. So the communists will refuel the South Africans where the black governments will not. What about our own uh, embassy staff and personnel in South Africa? What are they doing? I avoided them. Mm -hmm. I am not interested. I was not interested in what our State Department people in South Africa think or do. I've had a considerable amount of contact with various people in the State Department through the years. They've always represented, as far as I was concerned, a minority viewpoint. They do not represent uh, uh, viewpoints that I found very helpful in my travels. I didn't see any particular point in, in talking to them. On the same token, I didn't make any effort to talk to the leading officials of the South African government. My feeling is, in dealing with official bodies, that whatever you need to know, they will let you know in an official way. It's a waste of time to talk to an official and expect him to tell you something that he wouldn't tell the world. He's not going to give you any secrets, and he's not going to change his viewpoint for you. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, you can get from the public print all you need to know from our embassy in South Africa. How about the churches, the seminaries, the universities? Well, that is entirely different. The United States, in the United States, in my opinion, journalism long ago overtook literature as a vehicle of education to the people. People tend now in the United States to turn toward journalists and journalism in order to find out what they should know about the world, whereas in previous generations they used to turn to literature. Uh, One of the uh, earmarks of the American journalist is his 
obsession with contemporary secular politics and economics. Uh, our coverage of Iran, for instance, uh, went on at great length about the abuses uh, committed by the Shah against the Iranian people. But we were not told anything about the rising tide of Islam within Iran. In South Africa, we hear a great deal about the presumed abuses of the black people by the South African government, but we don't hear anything about the fact that South Africa is a Christian government. And that the most important element in South Africa is its Christianity. Christians run South Africa, and this is they're not hereditary Christians, they're not titular Christians, they're real Christians. They have a larger percentage of Christian clergymen in their government of any government in the West. And it's almost impossible for me not to believe that much of the criticism against the government of South Africa is based on the fact that it's Christian. Is the Christianity of South Africa, its church leaders, seminaries, and colleges facing the same erosion that our uh, Western church leadership is? Well, I think, I think to an extent, yes. The Afrikaans were extremely poor. They were held back, subjugated, bullied, and subjected to prejudice when the English were the dominant rule, dominant group in South Africa. In 1948, the Afrikaans Party, the Nationalist Party, which is described by its critics as the Dutch Reformed Church at prayer, achieved a majority in the elections and took over the government. Now, they really did take over the government. They took over the government completely, from bottom to top, so that the minute you go into the country, you go by border guards who, both male and female, are all Afrikaans. And the same is true of the leaders of the police, the army, the civil service, the post office, everything. The English-speaking Africans are a dominant factor in the private sector. They're the, the wealthiest, they, they run the commerce and the industries, the mining industry and so forth. The Afrikaans run the government. And many of them, as I said, are ordained ministers. They're almost all members of the Dutch Reformed Church. The Dutch Reformed Church, by the way, has more black members than it has white. Hmm. That's a surprise. They have black congregations. They also have, in some areas, they have uh, congregations that are mixtures of colored and white. Uh, and they have areas where the congregation is all white. It's all members of the Dutch Reformed Church. Do they insist with the black uh, clergy on the same high standard of education that they require of their own? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So they are producing quite a strong leadership among the black churches. Very strong. What is the relationship of these Dutch Reformed blacks and other blacks? Are they providing leadership for the rest of the black community. Well, this is a somewhat mixed area. In Soweto, for instance, there are several hundred different religious sects and more being created every week. There is a lingering uh, tribal religions. And, of course, when we talk about tribes in South Africa, we're really talking about black nations. Mm -hmm. The Zulus are the largest. Zulus are very proud. They have a very ancient history and they have their own religion, their own customs. And this is true of other black nations in South Africa. 
What the average American doesn't quite seem to grasp is that the blacks of South Africa are not integrated with each other. They are separate nations, and they vary just as widely as, let's say, Turks and the Irish, Greeks, Italians, and French. They have different language, they have different customs, they don't want to integrate with one another, and they think that it would be a monstrous idea if anyone tried to force them to. Mm -hmm. What about their attitude towards American Negroes? In other parts of Africa, American Negroes have had a very hostile reception from the African community, the black African community. Did you learn anything of that attitude in South Africa? Well, not specifically while I was there, no. Mm -hmm. uh, I take my cue on that from James Baldwin, who, an American black, first ran into South African blacks in Paris. And they said, what's your name? He said, Baldwin. They said, well, that's not your name. That's a white man's name. What's your real name? And that's what led to his essay, What is My Name? Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of the realization on the part of the American blacks that they had lost their heritage. Mm -hmm. And eventually, of course, this led to roots and things of that sort. Now, the coloreds in South Africa are in a position very equivalent because they are not members of a national, of a black nation, and they're not members of the white society. So they're sort of caught between conflict of cultures, and their position is somewhat tragic from one viewpoint, that is, from the viewpoint of identity and, and security and identity and things of that sort. On the other hand, they're much more prosperous than the black community. They fill uh, many professions and jobs, and in this area, for instance, the gates have been lowered. Segregation in the old American sense does no, long, no longer exist in South Africa. When Anne and I checked into the Carlton Hotel at Carlton Center in Johannesburg, the fanciest place in the largest city in the country, there were blacks in the dining room as guests and so forth. Mm -hmm. Back to the matter of Christianity in South Africa. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the difference between the faith, let us say, of the seminaries and of the ordinary Afrikaner. My feeling was, after I talked to the theological seminarians at Stellenbosch, uh, was right in the wake, for instance, of the time that Alan Bosak, colored minister, was elected a moderator of a international reformed uh, Synod, so to speak, the first colored man to assume that particular role, and at a time and at a meeting in which the uh, South African delegation was subjected to a great deal of abuse, and I asked one of the seminarians at uh, Stellenbosch what he thought of Alan Bosak, and he said, well, Bosak may be speaking to God. I was a bit surprised to hear that because, from my point of view, Bosak is peddling a, a message more filled with hatred than he is with brotherly love. On the other hand, when I talked to some professors who were not in the theological department, uh, but who were simply Afrikaans, I got the impression that they were a great deal more conservative than their clergy. Mm -hmm. So I think... South Africa is going through a phenomenon that is familiar to us in the United States, in which the clergy is moved left ahead of the congregation. I think also that the Afrikaans, as I earlier said, was very poor in 1948, is now quite wealthy. Their standard of living has moved up geometrically. They live in very elaborate homes lots of land, 
their elite are, you might say, gentlemen farmers. Uh, they, they, they're all, all have big farms. And Mr. Cronier, head of the Ned Bank, very important organization, bank in South Africa, contrasted the present position of the Afrikaans with his parents who were poor farmers in the Transvaal when he grew up. Mr. Cronier is now 71. He said, we are no longer raising our young men to become members of the police force. We're sending them to the university. They're becoming professionals. He said, I wonder as this proceeds how we will retain our ties with the people. And I think he's right. I think that the greatest challenge confronting the Afrikaners is prosperity. The Afrikaner has been the source of resistance in South Africa, and if there's a communist invasion, they will be the fighters. How long do you think it will be before all this liberalism and the clergy will reach to the level of these people who now have a very different faith? Another generation. Mm-hmm. The next 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they are, to some extent, falling into the pattern of the entire West. I think, to begin with, that one should not view South Africa as a separate culture. The whole West is one culture, just as all ancient Greece was one culture. They thought themselves as Sparta as being one place and Athens another and so on. Now from the retrospective view of history, we can look back and see that they were all Greeks and it was all one civilization. Uh, We are members of one civilization and we're all brothers. If, for instance, the United States were to be confronted overnight, as it was against Iran, with a hostile and communist Mexico and a hostile and communist Central America. We would be in the same position on this hemisphere that South Africa is in the African hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And our situation in terms of race and religion and economics and military position is comparable to that of South Africa just as the situation of the entire West and all its elements are comparable. What is uh, the size of the army in South Africa? I don't know. Uh, I really don't. Uh, The first trip that I made, I went with an investment group and we listened to the Minister of Law and Order, Minister of Finance, various and sundry other officials and we heard a great deal about gold and diamonds and the military value of the country, its economic situation, and so on. I noticed that they're going into deficit financing in order to elevate the blacks. They're going into very expensive educational experiments, and uh, I was told that some change agents in the United States have arrived and are teaching uh, confrontation, politics and whatnot to some of the students of South Africa. The universities have become quite liberal. The English uh, part of the population is adamant against the government and nags the government constantly in print and socially and culturally regarding uh, this situation. So that many of the elements that have uh, created the 60s here are present in South Africa. If you will remember, before Mr. Eisenhower left office, the United States seemed very stable and secure and everything was under control. And then after Mr. Kennedy arrived, uh, there was an entire change at the helm and we had the 60s. South Africa has yet to go through its sixties.
Do they have diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union? I don't believe they do. Mm -hmm. The Soviet they regard as the fountainhead of all their problems. Mm -hmm. They know that the campaign against the government in South Africa has its inspiration from the Kremlin. They also know, however, that Holland, Britain, the United States, are the great megaphones through which the Soviet speaks. Mm -hmm. The American press, American literature, the American liberal establishment, the English establishment, the Dutch establishment, all join in the vociferous criticism of South Africa. Nothing that the South Africans can do is considered sufficient. Nothing is timely. Nothing is enough. What they are saying to the South African is that you must have one man, one vote. And of course we all know that that would mean the extinction of the African regime. Now the same injunction is not applied to Israel because if it were, the Arabs, of course, would totally demolish Israel. The Israelis quite properly respond to such a demand that they are not going to commit suicide because people don't believe in the Jewish state. The South Africans say, we have no place else to go, this is our country, we've been here for 400 years, and we're going to keep it. So they compare themselves to the Israelis. They are uh, tied to Israel with treaty and to Taiwan also. Yes. Uh, how uh, do they view those relations? They take a great deal of comfort from Israel. Israel's invasion of Lebanon, for instance, was widely headlined in the Afrikan press. And whenever anyone uh, criticizes the South Africans for going into Mozambique, they point to Israel and say Israel engages in preemptive strikes uh, without being told that it's impossible. Why can't we? Mm -hmm. How about Taiwan? How close is that relationship? I think there's a fair amount of interchange but I didn't run across it in my interviews. Uh, are there military connections with Israel, um, exchange of equipment and the like? Well, I understand that there is, but this is an area, of course, which is not for public consumption. Yes. Uh, it's almost like the fact that the UN has for many years blockaded South Africa against uh, war material. So nobody knows how, who, from whom South Africa buys its crude oil today. But we know that they do. In a sense, you've already commented upon apartheid in that you discussed what's happening within the church and what has happened constitutionally. But the subject is such a, a major concern in the United States. Do you want to comment any further on that aspect? Yes. Uh, Franz Cronier said that in order to attract all the possible votes, the Nationalist Party made a deliberate appeal to the apartheid sentiment. And he said one of the results is that we're left with some very embarrassing laws. For instance, he said the Immorality Act, which forbids marriage between the races, is absolutely uh, unnecessary. He said no race needs that sort of protection. He said nobody goes across the lines anyway except bums and intellectuals. <laughs> but he said, uh, here we are, we're stuck with it. And he said now, he said they haven't quite got the courage so far to... Uh, abolish it, but he said, of course we will have to. Mm -hmm. Then I talked to another uh, Afrikaans who said, well, on the whole question of the apartheid and, for instance, the permission to live in certain areas, he said, this is widely violated. He said, there are people living all over the place. 
And he said, uh, technically speaking, they're not entitled to live here. And he said, nothing is said about it until there are some burglaries in the area. Then the police will conduct a roundup, and everybody that doesn't have the proper papers will be shipped back. But he said, in the main, it's like your laws of prohibition. He said, it, uh, they're on the books, but they no longer have the force they had initially. Mm-hmm. So we're talking, in effect, about a system of segregation which is dying and falling apart of its own weight as these people become better educated, and I'm talking now about all the people, white and black. And of all the subjects for Americans to get indignant about, it seems to me this would be one that they would be most reluctant to open up because it's such a ghastly amount of hypocrisy in the United States on this area. One of the things that has always tickled me on the subject of apartheid is that it first began in South Africa as a feeling against the English, not the blacks. They wanted total separation from the English, and they went to war over that issue. So now they still feel very strongly on that, and uh, I'm told... Uh, and are inclined to regard the English as still a problem. The English are a problem. The English do not feel the same loyalty to South Africa that the Afrikaans does, because the English can leave. They can go back to England, they can go to Australia or Canada, or they can come here, and they're very quick to say so. And in 1963, they got scared when uh, South Africa pulled out of the English Commonwealth and set up its republic. And they fled in great numbers, and they put their property up for sale at bargain prices, and they were positive that the whole place was going to collapse. Now, I think what some of people in our media overlook is that if the English had remained in control in South Africa, they would have turned South Africa over to the blacks 15 years ago as they were prepared to turn over Rhodesia. Mm -hmm. Eon Smith held out for 13 years after the English told him to turn the country over, so that if things had gone in South Africa the way the liberal says he wants to see them go, South Africa today would be a black-dominated, governed country. Now, in view of the uh, rest of the continent, and the sequence of events there. I fail to see how that would have improved either the South Africans or us. One of the things uh, that we encounter as we deal with South Africa, and no doubt you could only give us a surmise here, is the suspicion that, uh, like Israel, they have developed weaponry that they are not talking to the world about, in South Africa, nuclear weapons. What was your general impression there of the situation? My feeling is that they probably have that weaponry. I, I would not believe for a minute that they wouldn't have it. My feeling also is that they would use it with great discretion. They seem to me to be a very commonsensical sort of people. Uh, brave, self-reliant, but on the other hand, a people of conscience, not barbarians. People who do believe that they are their brother's keeper, and who are trying to do their Christian duty. Uh, I think the big element of misunderstanding here is that there is a sort of a legend floating through the West that Christianity is a suicide pact, and that a Christian is bound to turn the other cheek and to support other people at his own expense, and that's not true. It is not a Christian duty to turn a country over to unbelievers. And it's not the Christian duty to do the easy thing because it sounds good. 
And I think that the great flaw in American journalism is its refusal to accept the reality of religion in the affairs of mankind. Therefore, a country like South Africa, civilizations like Islam, in many other parts of the world become incomprehensible to us. One of the things that happened when Salazar died in Portugal and that country was in rather unstable hands was that a number of Portuguese began to see South Africa as the place to migrate to. We never did hear much after the early days as to what happened. Did you encounter a Portuguese uh, element in the population of any size? No. Uh, I was told that a considerable number of Poles have been emigrating oh, to South Africa. That's interesting. And South Africa is very uh, anxious to welcome immigrants with skills. Mm-hmm. There are a considerable number of uh, immigrants, of course, from former Rhodesia. Mm-hmm. But there are limits. Uh, South Africa will not accept everybody. They don't want elderly people with no means, for instance, and they don't like people with no skills. What they really want is workers. Mm-hmm. Well, the Polish element will certainly reinforce the Afrikaners because... There is the same characteristic of uh, stubborn resistance. That's right. Same independence. Yes. Yes. What about the caliber of the universities there, apart from the drift to liberalism? Well, they seemed very high. They have to, all the students have to be fluent in Afrikaans as well as English. If you can't speak both languages and express yourself in writing in both languages, there's no way that you can graduate. But uh, they have a very impressive number of universities, excellent facilities. And most of the interviewing that I did was with uh, university professors. Mm -hmm. I was very much impressed. Yes, my impression has been that there is a rather old-fashioned academic discipline so that it is more education in the classical sense of a very disciplined course of studies. The other thing that I felt was the Europeanization of South Africa. The United States used to be a country that reflected the culture of Europe a great deal more than it does today. South Africa still does. Mm-hmm. Everything seemed to have an artistic touch. The architecture, uh, the furnishings, the styles. Although there was a great deal of evidence of American mass culture in terms of the films and uh, our products, tires, uh, and everything except automobiles. The automobiles were all Japanese and European. American cars, the great big old American car, they told me, are only favored by the blacks in South Africa. Hmm. How about television? It is, is it still barred? Television is allowed only to a limited period of time, from about 6 in the evening until about 11. And it opens with prayers and it closes with prayers and it's uh, restricted the programs are restricted mm-hmm. however on the news area their news programs on television seem to cover a broader area in a more balanced way than our own mm-hmm. but that's pretty well true almost everywhere is it the only part of the world where television is still uh Held at arm's length? No. Switzerland is another. Oh, that's interesting. Switzerland doesn't believe in television in the afternoon. They think that's decadent. (laughs) It's decadent at every hour almost. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that about uh, Switzerland. Mm Hmm. Well... How about the quality of life uh, on the personal level? 
very much like middle America. Oh, mm-hmm. The uh, area around the Transvaal is like Southern California to our eyes. Semi-desert, sage, cactus, that sort of thing. The same kind of flowers. And mm-hmm. the lifestyle of the Afrikaans is very close to that of the Americans mm-hmm. uh, outside the eastern seaboard. Very simpatico. Mm-hmm. And I was very much impressed by the easy and relaxed personal attitude between black, white, colored in the country. I had no feeling of tension, no sense of distance in talking to other people, no matter what their race. Everything seemed to be very gentle and polite, friendly. A very prominent uh, American Negro scholar and writer who visited South Africa told me that it was clearly the best part of Africa and he had no problems with anything there. His one complaint was that uh, they didn't appreciate the free market sufficiently and its postal service was very bad. I think that's true, and I do think there is a definite socialistic element to their economy. The head, the Afrikan head of the largest insurance group down there, known as Sanlam, has written a very angry book about that. And I, I asked several Afrikaners about it, and they said he has a very good point, and we're, we're considering this. But they're caught in a dilemma which was posed to them, so to speak, by the West. And that is that if they're going to be held responsible for the living standards of the majority of the people who are black, there's no way that this can be done involving the people who are not commercially uh, sophisticated without going into socialistic experiments. And this, of course, is one of the paradoxes of the South African situation and the situation of the West. Mm-hmm. About 10 or 12 years ago, a South African told me in trying to explain uh, what we would regard as socialism in South Africa by saying that South Africa was European society before the French Revolution, that they represented uh, a world that had never experienced that. And he was afraid that it was the world of the French Revolution that was coming in from the West and that they were hostile and resentful towards that uh, culture. That's very astute. The Afrikaans escape the French Revolution. The Afrikaans are the children of the Reformation. Their language is the most modern language. It's the only one that's been created in the West since the Renaissance. The Afrikaans regards Africa as his birthplace. That's where the Afrikaans as a national type emerged. They're mixed with French and other groups. They're not all Dutch. And they believe that there has to be a better way of organizing society, a multiracial society, than the one they see exhibited so far in the West. Now, when we consider the size of our demonstrations and riots, for instance, not too long ago, a few weeks back, there was a monster riot in Miami. Yes. If that riot had occurred in Johannesburg, it would have been taken as a sign of the death knell of the South African government. Yet nobody is saying that our government is going to collapse. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me somewhere along the line here we're suffering a series of misapprehensions. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything more you'd like to add, Otto? Not at all. I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss this. Well, we've just skimmed the surface 
and those of you who are listening in will no doubt want to read the book, which we hope will be out. When do you uh, hope to have it finished and ready? Well, we have to depend upon the publisher for that. Mm -hmm. As you know, the, the quickest the publisher can publish after he gets the final manuscript and the copy editing is done in what now is six months. Mm -hmm. So I would assume at the earliest, the end of this year, the beginning of next. Yes. The book will cover a number of subjects we haven't touched on, and we'll go into what we have dealt with in depth. And we'll let everyone on our mailing list know about the book when it is published. And we'll look forward also to the reprinting of some of your other books, as well as uh, word on the Woodrow Wilson book. It's been a pleasure to be with all of you again, and we'll look forward to our next visit, and we have some other subjects somewhere down the road we'd like to uh, talk uh, about with Otto Scott. But until then, uh, thank you for listening, and in two weeks we'll be back with you again.